0: Welcome to Murder Minute. Today you'll hear the story of the I-70 Strangler. But first, your true crime headlines. A 27-year-old New Zealand man has been found guilty of the murder of Grace Milan, a British woman who was visiting the country as part of a year-long trip around the world. Milan and the man whose identity is protected by court order met on the dating app Tinder and spent the night of December 1st the night before her 22nd birthday, visiting bars around Auckland together before going to the man's hotel room, where he alleges that her death was the result of consensual, rough sex gone wrong. After her death, her killer posed her body for lewd photographs, watched pornography, and searched the internet for the location where he would eventually bury her body. The next day, he left Milan's dead body stuffed in a suitcase in his hotel room, as he went on a Tinder date with a different woman. He then took Milan's body to a nature preserve 12 miles outside of Auckland, where it would be found nine days later. During the murder trial, the defense offered up salacious details about the victim's sex life, which garnered international headlines. Victims' rights advocates expressed their outrage at the way that Miss Milan was portrayed during the trial, with one calling it, quote, the ultimate victim-blaming. The identity of Grace Milan's murderer cannot be disclosed due to a court suppression order that bans media from naming and picturing him. The purpose of this law is to protect people not yet proven guilty, but also to have a fair trial by ensuring the jury is not prejudiced by media coverage. But the judge in this case has ordered that the convicted killer's identity will remain suppressed indefinitely. A Boston store security guard has been indicted on charges of assault and battery on a child under the age of 14 and civil rights violations after a June incident involving an 11-year-old girl who was suspected of shoplifting. 36-year-old Mohammed Khan, who stands 6 feet 1 inch tall and weighs 225 pounds according to authorities, allegedly grabbed the girl and pulled her back into the store as she attempted to leave. He then threw her to the ground, punched her in the face while straddling her, and attacked her again after Boston police separated them. The incident was recorded by eyewitnesses and shared to Facebook. Khan, who was at the time of the incident under explicit orders not to touch any customer, including suspected shoplifters, is believed to have been reprimanded on four previous occasions for using excessive force and violating protocol. His employer, Securitas Security Services USA, has also been named in the indictment. The girl admitted to stealing merchandise valued at approximately $175 from the store. Because of her age, she is too young to be charged with shoplifting. Khan is scheduled to be arraigned December 17th in Suffolk Superior Court. In Orange County, California, a murder trial is underway for the murder of a 22-year-old engineering student who was killed at a bar in Laguna Niguel more than four years ago. The September 2015 murder occurred as a result of a fight over a game of pool at a Laguna Niguel bar. 38-year-old Elizabeth Thornburg got into an altercation with the victim, 22-year-old Cheyenne Mazury, hurling racial slurs at the man and spitting on him repeatedly. Thornburg's then-boyfriend, 40-year-old Craig Matthew Tanber, punched Mazuri and stabbed him in the chest and shoulder. He collapsed in the bar and was transported to a local hospital, where he was pronounced dead. Tanber was charged with murder, and his trial has faced numerous delays as his attorneys argued misconduct by Orange County deputies, including allegations that they provided heroin to a confidential informant to help find Tanberg. Tanber and that they questioned him while he was high on drugs and incoherent. Tanber, a known white supremacist gang member, was free on parole at the time of the murder, having pled guilty to voluntary manslaughter and other related charges for the 2004 beating death of a 26-year-old man in Huntington Beach, for which he received a 13-year sentence. This time around, Tanber faces 76 years to life in prison if he's convicted. Those were your true crime headlines. Next, the story of the I-70 Strangler. But first, a quick break. Welcome back to Murder Minute. Today, the story of the I-70 Strangler. When Roger Allen Goodlett was born in Indiana in July of 1960, homosexual activity was against the law in the state. You could go to prison for 2 to 14 years if you were caught, say, making out with someone of your same sex. It wasn't until 1994, the year Roger was murdered at age 34, that the American Medical Association declared its opposition to treatments designed to cure gayness. Growing up gay in small-town Indiana back then couldn't have been easy for Roger. But he had loved ones who accepted him for who he was no matter who he loved. He met his longtime partner Rick in his teens and remained close to his mother Catherine, who he visited the hot July day that would end in his murder. After leaving her home, Roger stopped at a gay bar. He'd planned to return to her home afterward, but never showed up. Concerned, Catherine called Rick. He hadn't seen or heard from Roger either, In a desperate flurry, Rick searched bars and other places he knew Roger frequented and reached out to people who knew him. But no one had seen or heard from his boyfriend, which was so unusual. When Roger still hadn't turned up the following day, Catherine filed a missing person report. According to Indiana law, though, police can't take action on such a report until they meet certain criteria, such as Obvious abduction by a stranger, mental impairment, inherently dangerous circumstances, or having been missing for at least 30 days. Roger didn't meet any of those, except the dangerous bit, but there was no evidence of that as of yet. So Catherine, Rick, and others who cared about Roger would simply have to wait, their hopes dwindling as time passed. That wasn't okay with Catherine no way would she wait several weeks for help finding her son. So she hired a private investigator who specialized in missing persons, Virgil Vandegrift. A few days after he heard from Catherine, Vandergriff received another eerily similar phone call. A woman called him seeking help finding her son, 28-year-old Alan Wayne Broussard, who, like Roger, was gay and at a gay bar the last time anyone saw him. He and Roger even shared a similar height and weight. Back then, there were no cell phones to track, and credit and debit cards weren't as common as they are today, so neither man had one to trace. Vandergriff and his team printed up flyers about the two missing men and canvassed the area, speaking to customers at the bars where they were last seen. As word spread, along with fear, tips poured in. The last time anyone reportedly saw Roger, he was getting into a light blue car with Ohio license plates near the bar he had left. No More Leads came about for several weeks, which were no doubt painstaking for loved ones of Roger and Alan. Then Vandergriff received a phone call that would add life or death urgency to his investigation. Publishers of gay magazines reached out to him alerting him to other missing gay men in the Indianapolis area. This news gave the detective a gut feeling he couldn't deny. This wasn't just a missing person case, but that of a serial killer. One who seemed to know how to cover his tracks and lure in marginalized people who wouldn't be diligently searched for. But he'd gotten that wrong when it came to his latest victims. Roger and Alan's loved ones refused to give up. Once the needed 30 days had passed, the Indianapolis Police Department, including Lieutenant Tom Green, took the case on, working closely with Vandergriff. They were able to find several similar cases from the previous two years, for a total of eight missing men. Three of the men had had relationships with the same man, who became their first suspect. But they searched the man's home and found nothing else that seemed suspicious he was quickly ruled out as a suspect. What happened next was another game-changer in the case. A man named Mark Goodyear told investigators he had had a bizarre and terrifying experience with a man he believed to be the guy they were searching for. After meeting the man at a gay bar, Mark went with him to a large house a bit north of the city. The house had a long driveway, a sign that read farm, and a pool, which seemed... Pretty normal, except for the fact that many mannequins were placed around it. The two had a few more drinks, then took a dip in the pool. That's when the man suggested autoerotic asphyxiation. A very risky practice of cutting off your air supply to make orgasms more intense. Something Mark had never tried. Once the man looped a hose around Mark's neck, he sensed that he had no plan of easing up. Was he the killer police had been searching for? Fearing for his life, he faked passing out. The man seemed stunned when Mark opened his eyes before, thankfully, making it away from the house alive. The following week, the man reached out to Mark by phone. Investigators tracked the call to a payphone and convinced Mark to arrange to meet the man at a particular location that they would stake out. But the man must have caught on because he never showed. In his statement to the police, Mark described the man's car as light blue with Ohio plates. Now the team knew they had to look into the Ohio connection and soon realized there was much, much more to this case. Police officer David Lindloff spoke of several unsolved cases in Ohio that seemed similar to the spree in Indiana. They were murder cases dating back to the 1980s. His team called them the I-70 murders because numerous bodies were found dumped in a ditch off of Interstate 70. The cause of death in at least four of the cases? Strangulation. Convinced the case had crossed state lines, Indiana and Ohio investigators contacted the FBI, who sent out specialists to formulate a profile for the killer which included these characteristics that seemed likely. He was probably in his mid-40s. He may have started killing in his late 20s or early 30s. And he was likely married and frustrated about his gayness or bisexuality. Following up on what Mark, the survivor turned witness had said about the large home in Indiana, investigators were able to find a home that fit the description perfectly situated in a wealthy conservative area called Hamilton County, a bit north of Indianapolis. It was called Fox Hollow Farm, sat on 18 acres of land, and had a long driveway and a sign that read farm. It belonged to Herbert Baumeister, an upstanding business owner and family man. But the Hamilton County police thought the story seemed too outrageous and that the evidence was too sparse to justify a search warrant so investigators on the case couldn't search it. Then Mark helped them even more. While he was at a local gay bar, he spotted the suspect. That may seem unlikely, but remember, this was a small town area not especially known for plentiful gay bars. Mark stayed hidden, then asked a friend of his to follow the guy. He did and was able to get a license plate number. Police traced the plate to the owner of the light blue vehicle, Herbert Baumeister, the businessman and family guy who owned the house they hadn't been able to search. Remarkably, Hamilton County police still wouldn't pursue him. They still felt evidence was lacking, but others have speculated that they just couldn't fathom that a successful, upstanding citizen, a husband and father in their rich area could even be suspected of such a thing. A common photo of Baumeister shows a clean-cut man wearing a suit and tie. He has a neutral, maybe warm expression. He looks like someone who might sell you insurance or a car. Investigators outside of Hamilton County continued searching for hard evidence and dug into Baumeister's past. Yes, he had a successful business, a chain of thrift stores called Save-A-Lot. He was married to a woman named Julie, with whom he had three kids. But underneath all of that, they found some peculiar history. Baumeister seemed to have a fairly normal childhood until adolescence, when he started obsessing over grotesque things and lost his moral compass, seeming unable to determine right from wrong. Rumor had it that he once placed a dead crow he found on his teacher's desk. He also reportedly peed on her desk, and at a certain point placed a slice of cake in a drawer just so he could monitor its decay. In his mid-twenties, he started working for the Bureau of Motor Vehicles. He was fired after urinating on a letter addressed to the governor. Even though investigators in Indiana and Ohio were confident Baumeister was their guy, months went by with no new evidence. And without search warrants from Hamilton County, they felt a bit stuck. Then they learned that Baumeister and his wife Julie were separating. She had moved out. So they approached her, letting her know that they believed her husband might be connected somehow to the spree of murders of gay men. Julie didn't feel comfortable talking with them, even though an experience came to her mind immediately when they said the word homicide. So she told her attorney what happened instead. She said that a few months earlier, her son had been playing outside and came upon a skull. When Julie mentioned it to her husband, he claimed it was from his father's medical practice and they left it at that. As their separation and then divorce proceedings grew messier though, Baumeister attempted to get custody of their children. This prompted Julie to want to talk to the police. She feared that he would take and keep their kids putting their welfare in jeopardy. So she gave investigators permission to search their property. That search revealed many, many more bones. In total, they located fragments from at least 11 people. Since no more skulls were found though, the bodies couldn't be identified. Julie also shared that when she took the kids to the lake for vacations, her husband stayed home, using his need to work as an excuse. Comparing her calendar to dates of missing men, police confirmed that Baumeister had been home alone every time one of the missing gay men vanished. She also confirmed that he had done business in Ohio and frequented I-70 in the early 80s. Even with these findings, and after learning that Baumeister had requested a funds transfer to a location in Michigan, very close to the Canadian border, a sign he was probably planning to flee, Hamilton County refused to arrest him, claiming again that they lacked evidence that he had actually killed anybody. Only later would they admit to errors of judgment on their part. Another lapse involved Baumeister's light blue car. No one had forensically analyzed it at that point, When it finally was tested, investigators found that the interior of the trunk had been completely removed. The only spot of blood they located was too small for testing. By this time, it had been three years since Roger and Alan had gone missing. The killer too had been missing for a week when investigators finally had the chance to fully search his property. One day later, on July 4th, 1996, campers discovered Baumeister's body on the ground by a car in Ontario. He had died from a self-imposed gunshot to the head. Just before, shortly after he made it into Canada, a police officer had found him asleep on the side of the road and entered his information into the system. He must have known he was about to get caught. And to him, that seemed worse than anything, even death. A lengthy suicide note was found in the car he'd been driving, raising investigators' hopes. Maybe they would get a confession and more information, posthumously, but no such luck. In the note, the killer only mentioned troubles with his work and his marriage. Numerous people have speculated about Baumeister's childhood and possible motivations for his crimes. During his adolescence, when he began acting out in those bizarre ways, His parents brought him in for medical testing, where he was diagnosed with schizophrenia and multiple personality disorder, which is now known as dissociative identity disorder, or DID. One hallmark of schizophrenia is a loss of touch with reality. And DID is usually brought on by trauma. As a way to escape troubling memories, your personality basically splits into at least two. Both conditions are treatable, more so today than back then, typically through medication and therapy. But it appears Baumeister didn't receive much of any treatment. It's also a lot more common for people with schizophrenia to be victimized by violence than to be perpetrators themselves. A study published in Schizophrenia Bulletin showed people with the disorder are 14 times more likely to be victimized than to be arrested for violence. Even so, a lack of mental health care might have been one factor of many in this killer's makeup. Feeling ashamed of his sexual orientation was probably another. No matter the reason, many lives would have been saved had he been caught early on. In all, almost 5,000 bones were found in connection to the case. No one really knows how many men he murdered Modern forensic testing has helped identify some of the bodies based on bone particles that they found. One of those bodies belonged to Roger Allen Goodlett, the 32-year-old man who was loved until the very end. In the documentary Herb Baumeister, Secret Life of a Serial Killer, Rick, his partner of 17 years, said, It's like part of my heart is gone because he was my love, my friend, my family. Roger's mother Catherine said she'd been suicidal at times because of the deep heartache from losing her son. That she can only manage at times by attempting to push it all away. A tribute on the memorial site for Roger features a note with a signature reading Mark Goodyear, the name of the survivor who helped put investigators on the right track. It reads, I think of you daily. I have been back to Fox Hollow Farm in 2016 and 2017, searching for answers mostly, finding peace in your memory. I want you to know that I said your name often to HB. I insisted that he remember you. This has been Murder Minute. For a true crime anytime, download the Murder Minute app or follow us on Instagram at murder minute for exclusive content and early access. Find the show on Himalaya.